Welcome to Healthline 3, I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Robert Sogamonian of Piermont Cardiology about iliac vein obstruction or compression. And we'll be taking your calls throughout the show. And as a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room when you call so doctor can hear your question. And the number is 318-219-4569. You'll see it scroll across your seat at the bottom of your screen throughout the show. Thank you so much for joining us, doctor. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about, remind people what you, a little bit about yourself. What do you actually do? And then we'll get into what we're talking about sure. today. Sure, so I'm an interventional cardiologist over with Piermont Cardiology. And so we deal with vast majority of cardiovascular issues. Okay, and yeah. we're talking today about iliac vein obstruction or compression. What does that mean exactly? Iliac vein obstruction as, a, as an entity, uh, as a whole, iliac vein compression is part of one of the causes of obstruction. I'll go into that as well, but mm -hmm. the main idea is an obstruction at a place in the vein and around the pelvic region to where it doesn't drain back to the heart, so you have difficulty draining all the blood back to your heart hence causing a lot of lower extremity symptoms, ulcerations, et cetera, which I'll go into it. Okay, and that's something we talk about too, that it goes, we see the flowing through the heart, but actually there is blood always going from the heart and back up through the heart. That's how it works. That's, that's right, the flow, that's right? right. The okay. arterial system provides blood out of the heart, but it needs to drain the deoxygenated blood back to the heart. So from the legs, if there's a cutoff in that flow draining back to the heart, everything is just gonna pull down below. Okay, and how is this diagnosed? So the diagnosis varies from least sensitive as being an ultrasound, where just basic vascular ultrasound that you could use, um, but it's technically difficult in certain scenarios, all the way up to an invasive uh, procedure, which is the gold standard and it's the most sensitive uh, approach of diagnosing the actual etiology uh, of the compression and the obstruction itself. And that's with venogram and IVIS and I pass catheters through the obstruction itself and I'll go over, over that as well. Okay. But there is also a middle roam of semi-sensitive tests such as CAT scans, CT venography and MR venography that can kind of Get a, get a layout and anatomical structures, but um, an intravascular ultrasound is the gold standard and the most sensitive way of diagnosing it. Okay, and does it depend on the symptoms or the person? Which one you start with, how to diagnose? Yeah, it depends on that as well. Mild symptoms um, wouldn't really call for this, but depending on severity, if the symptoms are very severe, such as lower extremity, real bad pain, Achinish, Charlie horses, venous insufficiency, swelling, and most importantly, either an old ulcer that is healed or a current ulcer that's present. So if your suspicion is very high, then an invasive diagnostic modality would be a better approach than something l less sensitive. And that's really what studies have shown too. If you have an old healed ulcer or an ulcer, you tend to find more more likelihood of it being an obstruction. Yeah, that, that's really good. I'm glad we started with that. Let's talk all about symptoms and everything. This is only in the lower extremities, only in your legs that this is? Mainly in the legs. Okay. There could be obstruction at any part of the body, but right. I'm focusing on mainly the pelvic vein obstruction. Okay. There's an inferior vena cava that comes down your off off the heart mm -hmm. and splits into each leg. 
Um, and so most commonly, an iliac vein compression by the overlying artery is also known as May Thurner syndrome. And that's really the most common cause of iliac vein compression. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's other causes as well. Um, DVTs, thrombosis, anatomical variants, aneurysms, there's different etiologies to it as well. Okay, and so what is, if someone's watching, what is the mildest symptom that might happen in this one might be, even if they have an inkling, if they, it's okay to call the doctor, and the best thing is for a doctor to say, no, you're fine, but even <coughs> if there's something that someone's kind of wondering about today, well, what's very, the mildest very to the most? Varicosities and mild swelling and, and mild pain in the legs, um, would be would be one of the milder symptoms. The more severe symptoms, the worrisome symptoms, when this has been long-lasting, and you could just imagine if there has just been a blockage, just the pull, the mm -hmm. pulling of the blood has been there for so long, it forms ulcers. Um, so a milder symptom would just be some swelling of the lower extremities, some achiness, um, varicosities, bulging veins mm. that don't really cause severe debilitating symptoms at least. Um, but I always try and ensure that there is no arterial disease as well. That So all the major components need to be first eliminated. And this is a pretty um, overlooked diagnosis for the most part. When mm -hmm. heart failure is not one of the etiologies, when peripheral artery disease is not one of the etiologies, I always think about this as a possible diagnosis. Okay. And let's talk about the, the pain that you might feel. In there. Is this a pain that is all the time? Is it throbbing? Is it only when you rest or only when you exercise? What kind of pain would someone look the for? <coughs> the interesting part of the venous um, system and obstruction is that it could be all the above. With arterial, it's more when you walk and mm -hmm. when you stop, it goes away. That's typical claudication. However, with the venous system, mainly it would be if you're standing on your legs for more than like 10 to 30 minutes and you start feeling throbbing in the calves and the thighs. Uh, that's usually a pretty typical presentation. Okay, and if this goes untreated, what, what can happen? Well, iliac vein compression, such as May Thurner, quote unquote, is the overlying artery just pounding on that area, pounding on that vein. So your natural arterial system is actually compressing the vein itself. So with that damage over time, you've, it tends to cause fibrosis, thrombosis. It may, be, it may lead to pulmonary embolism and mm -hmm. blood clots everywhere else if it's left untreated. Um, and may be life-threatening. Okay, let's talk about what fibrosis and thrombosis. Thrombosis really, is, is basically really? a, a form of blood clotting mm -hmm. and with, with overtime damage, your, your body tends to secrete kind of uh, metabolites that end up forming a thrombus around that area and that thrombus can stagnate or just fly up to the mm -hmm. lung. Oh, okay. Or even go down the lower extremities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and with that said, after even that thrombus is healed, the body tends to the the veins are very elastic, so the elasticity of the vein also becomes fibrotic and just very tough. Hence, one of the other reasons why you would get okay. problems with that. Okay, we have uh, a caller for you, okay. uh, Renee. What is your question for the doctor? Hi, um, I have a question. If you have heart failure and 
congestive heart failure? Are those the same thing? Great question. Uh, no, it's not the same thing. So I, uh, the, the main uh, component of, of this is to ensure that heart failure is out of the question because heart failure can present um, very similarly to this and you could have lower extremity swelling and pain, but that's primarily etiology of the heart not being able to pump everything out into the arterial system. So it tends to back up into the lungs and eventually down into the inferior vena cava and causes lower extremity swelling. Now, unless heart failure is um, optimally controlled um, and, and that the heart pressures are not elevated and you still have significant symptoms, then this may be something that may be concomitant uh, finding. Right. That, that's what I was thinking because um, I'm thinking I have heart failure because uh, it's really, really odd. For five and a half months since September, I haven't been able to eat anything. I had horrendous unrelenting nausea, uh, early satiety. I mean, just like with one bite and it was just like over and that would come back up. Nothing would stay down but yogurt and jello and just uh, fatigue. And I noticed last year that I started if I did any kind of cardio, I would get chest pain. And so I have a referral from Dr. Jones to come see uh, some of y'all. But I was just wondering if that sounded anything like it might be heart failure. Absolutely, and I'm sorry you're going through all of that. And the, all, all of your questions, everything can be simply answered. We would obtain an ultrasound of your heart and based off a of physical exam and overall, um, uh, studies and uh, history, we can kind of narrow it down as to what is actually going on. I've also been seeing a lot of post-COVID um, iliac vein thrombosis and compression as well. So, um, right. hope you feel better. I don't have any. Yeah, I don't have any extremity swelling, so that's good. Okay, I will be in there shortly, then. <laughs> All right, thank great. you. Thank, thank you so much for calling. Thank you. I hope yes, ma'am. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, um, and also, that's a good point. That was actually my next question, because it seems like talking to this, and we talk about the plumbing and the aspect, and that's a good visual for me. The heart must work so hard. If there's an, an obstruction, will the heart work even harder to unclog that and get the flow going? Is that, yeah. what does that do to well, your heart? Well, so it doesn't particularly affect the heart, oh, okay. uh, which is a good thing, yeah. unless, unless the clot tends to go to the to the pulmonary arteries and over time that gives a strain to the right side of the heart and hence you have right heart failure ah. um, which are elevated pressures in the right side from the pulmonary pathology etc okay yeah. all right that makes sense thanks <laughs> see I have my own questions I'm just like wanting to know about this so um, tell me a little bit about like we talked about the symptoms and how is it diagnosed? How is it treated? What do you do when there's an obstruction? If there are mild symptoms, um, something uh, conservative management regardless goes along platform. But if it's mild symptoms, then the mainstay treatment is compression stockings. Mm. You would just imagine you need to just pump from below to get the circulation back up to the heart. And that's really what compression stockings do especially when you're on your feet all the time, I encourage compression stockings all the way to help pump even sometimes 
concomitantly you have leaky valves and superficial vein um, issues as well, which is a separate topic as an entity. Mm. So the valves in the veins are unable to close and push the blood back. So compression stockings really help with this scenario. Now more severe symptoms of iliac vein compression has been diagnosed or obstruction in any etiology, then the number one treatment is to alleviate that stenosis and that blockage by putting in stent. Mm -hmm. And so stents would open up the vessel and keep it open. Even when the artery is still pounding on it, it won't crunch back down. So the stent will basically open up that channel and flow will now resume and your obstruction is alleviated then. Okay. Yeah. And we talk about stents a lot. And it's so what exactly, tell us for someone who doesn't know, what is a stent? How does that, how does that really work? Sure, and so does it stay once yeah. you put it in? It's not yeah, right. it does stay. There are rare scenarios that have been reported mm -hmm. um, uh, that stents do migrate sometimes to the right side of the heart. Mm. But these are very rare scenarios. Yes. Stents end up being anchored in the vein itself, and so migration is very rare. And it all takes sizing and measurements, and I do all that before any stents get placed. So you need to ensure that the sizing is adequate. These aren't coronary stents that you, uh, you know the public is usually aware of, such as heart attacks. Uh, and we do that as well, but this is a, these are bigger stents. They're about 16, yeah. just to give you um, a kind of a comparison, they're about 16 to 20 millimeters in comparison to the artery stents in the heart, which are about average three oh. to four millimeters. Okay. So these are big stents big. Um, that, that stay, that mm -hmm. stay open. And studies have shown that they do remain open with adequate medical therapy on top of it to just ensure that they don't s close up again, mm -hmm. they don't thrombose again. Um, and those are, those are possible possibilities of it happening as well. But for the most part, yeah. Uh, the studies have had good outcomes with this. Okay. And we have a Fitzgerald on the line for you. What is your question for the doctor? I'd like to know, can you sleep with compression stockings? That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so I actually failed to mention this, but when you're sleeping, when you're, when you're resting, I suggest elevating your feet so that blood returns back to the heart. So if you're on a, if you're on a couch, put up a recliner or, or get your feet up so you don't particularly have to wear compression stockings while you're sleeping or when you have your feet elevated. Mainly compression stockings are best for when you're on your feet and when you're out and about. That was a really good question, Fitzgerald. I'm glad you asked that. That was on my mind because we get these socks and I don't know how long we're supposed to wear them. And mm. so I guess and it's each, good to know each what's each one of these it. compression stockings, I tailor it to patients, mm -hmm. meaning not one is all. Uh, so there's different compression um, durability, different, different pressures, different lengths come up to the thigh, to the knee. So it's patient-based. And making sure you're getting the right size for Absolutely. your body. Absolutely, and sometimes sure you know, patients don't size. like to tolerate it, and it's sometimes too tight. So you have to tailor it so that they're not taking it off just because they're uncomfortable. Otherwise, the treatment's just out the door. Okay. Fitzgerald, are you still there? Did that answer your question? I, uh, well, I have one last question I asked okay. him. 
What happens if you uh, are living a sedentary life, you're watching television, and then uh, many times you're, you're getting up from your sofa and you're running over to the, the kitchen to do whatever you have to do in the kitchen? What, what's going on with the heart when, when you have activity like that? Yeah, well, the heart, the best way to, to put this is the more you move around and the more you exercise, the more you're taking your heart to the buffet. The more you're at the buffet, the more you're choking out the heart. So sedentary lifestyle, unfortunately, um, kind of not only it doesn't, it doesn't cause um, your heart to crumble really, but it does not provide oxygenation to it. If you're not moving around too much or exercising, really, that's the entire idea, if, if that answered your question. So that means that I'm falling asleep because I'm not getting enough oxygen, right? Well, there may be other uh, components to that as well, such as obstruct obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so um, that may be a possibility that may cause uh, issues with your heart as well if you're falling asleep pretty quickly. Um, so I would I would look into that as well. And w what about night sweats? If you have a lot of night sweats, what happens? Is that part of the heart too? Uh, there could be many reasons for that. Um, in regards to the night sweats, um, not particularly coming from the heart itself, unless you, it's associated with other symptoms, such as chest okay. pain, shortness of breath, palpitations. But if it's just night sweats, um, I don't think the primary reason would be the heart. Okay. Thank you very much, doctor. Appreciate it. Have My a pleasure. nice day. Hopefully I answered Thank your questions. You. you did. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you so much for calling. We really appreciate that. And I love it when they call in because it always answers so many things that everyone's watching and, and wanting to know. So it opens up for even more discussion. Thank you so much. So um, after someone is treated, um, and, and first of all, let's talk about what the obstruction is. What is it? Is it a buildup of something? What is the obstruction in the vein? Or the so vein? there could be multiple causes of it. If it's an obstruction that is May Thurner's, which is a compression, mm -hmm. then it's just the artery compressing on the vein, causing the vein to really just pancake and be very small. So uh, that's one reason. The other reason may be in a very bad case is really just clot buildup around that area. And if it's an acute clot buildup, usually it overtakes the entire vein in that region itself. And so the treatment modality for that also changes as well. And so if it's an acute presentation and there's clot all over the place, then thrombolysis is, is one approach that I take where you really just put a catheter there and, and, and infuse a medication that really just mm -hmm. dissolves all the clot um, because then you can't really just put a stent there for that. You have to take care of that. The other modality is thrombectomy system to where you're, you're literally, I'm putting catheter in there and really just sucking the clot out. Uh, so those are, those are the two major modalities in that perspective. And then after that, you would put a stent to prevent that from happening. Okay, are there any, oh, we have Shirley. Hi, Shirley, what is your question for the doctor? Shirley, hi Shirley, what is your question for the doctor? 
I got a question about the thyroid gland. Shirley, would you mind turning down your TV? Shirley, can you hear us? Oh, hold on a minute. Okay. I got you. Okay. All right. We hear you now. What is your question? Uh, the thyroid gland. How, how, how does the thyroid gland affect your heart? The thyroid gland can affect your heart in multiple ways. If it's overactive, it can cause a lot of palpitations, possible arrhythmias, um, non-life-threatening non arrhythmias, commonly atrial fibrillation, mm -hmm. hypothyroidism, um, and even hyperthyroidism, having, having an untreated event and having the heart being so fast if it's not caught can lead to heart failure does that answer your question Shirley well I wanted to know if my heart if my thyroid gland is not not working at all how important is taking my medicine for thyroid well, it's very important um, for, for multiple reasons. And if your thyroid gland is not working well, I assume that you're taking a thyroid replacement medication. And it's very important to ensure that your thyroid replacement medication is working and that you're monitoring your thyroid levels. Because if you don't take it, it could lead to myriad of, of, of symptoms. You'll feel very weak and it could affect your heart as well, both um, from heart failure perspective as, as well as having high blood pressure, feeling fatigue, etc. Does that answer your question, Shirley? It does, and I think I've got to have my thyroid checked for my heart problem. Okay, well, good luck to you. I hope you feel better and you get everything straightened out soon. Thank you for calling. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care. So how soon after treatment can someone resume activity? Does it change things? Do they have to modify their life after having something like this? Same day. Oh. Usually I access a very small vein. It's a superficial vein. Mm -hmm. If I'm unable to access that vein, then I would access a larger vein. But veins overall, they're a low pressure system complications are a lot lower than arterial systems. Mm. So the venous system is a very low pressure environment. Um, it's a same-day procedure. Usually patients come, have their diagnostic. If they need stent placement, they would have the stents placed as well and be discharged same day. Resume activity, and I actually encourage activity. Great. Uh, because if it's a, it's, it's a stagnant system, the venous system, the less you move, the more the blood is going to stagger around and the body tends to start thrombosing and forming a clot when the blood is not moving. It's a natural phenomenon. So the sooner the better. Get back Absolutely. to that activity. Okay. Absolutely. We have a ginger on the line now. Ginger, thank you for calling. What's your question yeah. for the doctor? How you doing? Um, I had a heart attack. Um, I had a heart attack two years ago and I had a stent placed in my main descending artery. And I'm very thankful to be here. And uh, Willis Knighton Hospital, I have to credit for this. On top of that, I was going to ask the doctor, how safe is it to do a lot of activities before I had the heart attack is after the stent? What should I avoid doing? 
how long has this was the stand placed? The fit was placed uh, two years ago in January. Okay. Well, there is no limitation in regards to activity um, this far out. Usually, right after a heart attack um, or open heart surgery, um, there is cardiac rehab to where a, a trainer gets to a certain level of maximum effort and activity for you until you graduate from the program. But this far out, I encourage as much activity as you can tolerate. Okay, okay, thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for calling, we appreciate that. So the stent uh, procedure. Oh, we have a Jim. Jim, what is your question for the doctor? Hello, thank you for your program. Um, I, I've known of many people uh, that have just gone in for a checkup uh, with the cat procedure, the catheter procedure, only to learn that they had blockage and they would be rescheduled for a heart stent. Uh, my question is, is um, how can one, if it's agreed upon, you know, with the patient beforehand, get all that done at the same time? They're going in to explore with the cath procedure, make sure the doctor can do it too, and then they they say, okay, I see blockage. We're going to go ahead and put the stent in at that time. It seems cumbersome and more expensive. Everything to come back and schedule it at a later date. Why, why are they not doing that at the same time? Great, great question, and um, it, it, it all depends on the scenario, of course. Now, um, I'll, I'll talk about that heart portion of it. Uh, this, is a, this is a separate topic, and I do that as well, but um, in regards to the cardiac catheterization for the heart to see the blockages that surround the heart, and your question is, why not just go ahead and treat it there and then? Now, it, it varies because it's not black and white. You may have multiple blockages that may require open heart surgery. So usually patients come off the table, then there's a thorough discussion with the surgeons as well as the patient to see if open surgery is an option. Then when we come to a decision making that that's not an option, then we proceed with a stage procedure to treat each vessel at a time. And the reason why it's a stage procedure is because it minimizes radiation dose as well as contrast use because too much contrast, fixing too many vessels at the same time is going to be a load to your kidneys as well as radiation exposure. So that's where um, our limitation comes in as to how many to treat. Now, if you're presenting with an acute heart attack and you're presenting in an acute setting, that's different. In that scenario, if the lesion is 100% occluded or even 99% occluded and it's hanging on a thread, then we go ahead and fix it there and then. Um, and at that time, you would fix it. So unless there is a vague scenario, then you can you know, get the patient off the table and then schedule a staged procedure. And that's a fantastic question. From my perspective, when I, when I do the iliac veins, it all depends on the scenario. I may sometimes go ahead and, and treat it at that time or come off if, the, um, if I find something that's very complicated that I may need to speak to the patient again about it. Um, and really the diagnostic portion of this is about 15 minutes. I pass catheters up around and come back and all it is is just a needle prick and, um, and, uh, and a tube insertion. So there's no cutting involved with this. So, um, it's not very taxing on the patient to have to come back with a better game plan. Okay. 
Okay, thank you. Is the stress test still the only test? Let's say you know you feel you're healthy, you're not having heart problems, but you want to get a checkup to make sure there's not a um, problem. What what, what is the uh, type of test that one does? To, and can they make an appointment directly with y'all, or do you have to go through your uh, referral? Well, uh, it depends on your insurance um, and and your referral base. You, you, you may make an appointment directly. Um, if not, you can definitely make an appointment through your referral. Um, but However, if you're asymptomatic, not having any chest pain, not having any shortness of breath, a stress test is not warranted. And basic tests can be implemented. And a thorough physical exam and a history needs to be taken in order to determine what exactly you may need. Um, so, such as EKG, an ultrasound of your heart, any of those, if, if any of that is abnormal, then you can proceed to the stress test. However, for a stress test to just be ordered in a patient that is asymptomatic, meaning not having any chest pain, not having any shortness of breath, it's not warranted. Thank you, sir. No problem. Good day. Have a good day. Thank you so much for calling. This has been just wonderful. If there's one thing that you could leave our viewers with today, what would you say? Pay attention to your symptoms mm -hmm. because when, when sometimes patient present, patients present very late, it's, it's really a salvage therapy than preventative. Okay, and it's much better to jump yeah. in and get it ahead of time. And whenever you have lower extremity symptoms, it's not black and white mm -hmm. so there could be many causes and this is one that's unrecognized over and overlooked pretty often and it's all about communication just call you and ask that's right right all right thank you so much for your time today My all of our viewers have been so wonderful calling in and your answers have just been so informative and and i could just talk to you all day thank you all right <laughs> thank you so much and everyone thank you so much for joining us on healthline 3 today take care and we'll see you next time